Good afternoon. We express our appreciation to Council for working with us on our uh, schedule. The five-day cases tend to go a bit, a bit long. So uh, thank you all for working with us. Um, our last case of the day is State versus Hicks, and we'll hear from the appellant. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the Court. My name is Michael Henry. I'm an Assistant Attorney General with the North Carolina Department of Justice. In an unusual turn of events, at least for me, I, I didn't write the State's briefing before the Court of Appeals or this Court, but I did add my signature to the State's brief in this Court and will be arguing on behalf of the State today. I'd like to save five minutes for rebuttal, should it be necessary. Um, might be helpful to start with what this case is not about. It's not about whether the jury could have found Caleb Adams behaved badly or uh, that defendant could have rightly feared for her life. It's not about whether defendant presented evidence from which the jury could have found she acted in self-defense. No one disputes these matters, and the jury was indeed instructed on self-defense. Rather, the case is about whether there was evidence from which the jury could have concluded that defendant was an aggressor for purposes of self-defense. And my argument today is that there was indeed such evidence, and in finding this not to be the case, the Court of Appeals erroneously viewed the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant, and therefore that the Court of Appeals should be reversed. Touching on, briefly on, the key facts, um, Caleb and defendant had what was a very high drama relationship um, in or around 2015. They were both married to others and having multiple affairs, including with each other. The relationship was volatile, it involved numerous arguments, reconciliation, methamphetamine use, and episodes in which defendant contacted Caleb's wife. Including among these was a call from defendant to Caleb's wife around midnight on the evening before his death, telling her that she and Caleb were having an affair. At 6 a.m. the following morning, Caleb called defendant and said he was on his way to her house. He had been in some sort of trouble with a mess supplier who had been trying to locate Caleb. Defendant texted the supplier, let him know he was on the way, and then texted Caleb and asked him not to come. At 6.28, and the times are important here just because in this case in particular, it's sort of the next two or three minutes that everything, everything happens. At 6.28, defendant texted Caleb's supplier to let him know that Caleb had arrived. <clears throat> defendant told law enforcement subsequent to that that Caleb arrived angry, entered her bedroom, demanded her phone. She was trying to delete text messages with Caleb's supplier at the time, and she refused to turn over the phone. Caleb became enraged, picked up the pistol from the nightstand, pointed at her, he ultimately dropped the gun and grabbed her. There was a struggle, and she shot him. At trial, she added various details, including that Caleb began to leave before returning the gun, and she asked for it back. He threw it on the nightstand. She picked it up, started to walk past him, and that's when he grabbed her and stomped on her feet and hit her in the head and slammed her against the mirror. And as she was trying to get away, she pulled out the pistol and shot him to stop her from hurting her because she was so scared he was going to hurt her and her family. At 6.30 a.m., roughly two minutes, after Caleb arrived, defendant called 911 and stated she had shot Caleb. When law enforcement arrived, she was not significantly injured, did not complain of any pain. But Caleb had indeed been shot twice in the back from at least six inches away, possibly more. Defendant was indicted for and convicted of second degree murder. The question before the Court of Appeals was whether the trial court erred by instructing on an aggressor doctrine instruction, including an aggressor doctrine instruction in the self-defense instructions to replace it in terms of the facts of this case, that is, whether there was evidence from which the jury could have found the defendant's story about shooting Caleb only to get him to stop his assault 
while in fear for her life was in fact false or an embellishment, and to find instead that defendant shot Caleb after the assault had ended as a sort of fatal comeuppance for his bad behavior. The former would of course be self-defense, whereas the latter would be revenge. <clears throat> so the answer to that question depends in large part on what makes an aggressor in this state. Whether someone is an aggressor, uh, as this court has articulated, depends on whether they fought willingly. The law does not require a defendant to instigate a fight to be considered an aggressor. And even when a fight is begun by another person, one may become an aggressor by unnecessarily continuing or renewing the fight. That is, a person who is not the initial aggressor may become an aggressor if the initial aggressor abandons the fight and the opponent is aware of that. The Court of Appeals has articulated that in determining whether there is evidence that defendant was an aggressor, courts look at various factors. Circumstances precipitating the altercation, the presence of weapons, the degree and proportionality of the party's use of defensive force, the nature and severity of the party's injuries, and whether there is evidence that any party attempted to abandon the fight. Which then brings us to the question of whether does, do the facts support an aggressor instruction here? First of all, most importantly, <clears throat> for purposes of answering this question, we have to view the evidence in the light most favorable to the state. It is of course true that self-defense is a defense, and when we're deciding whether we instruct a jury on a defense, we view the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant. But the aggressor doctrine in particular defeats the self-defense, either in whole or in part, defense. And therefore, it only makes sense to view it in the light most favorable to the state. Indeed, it almost couldn't make sense any other way. The key facts here as to whether or not there was evidence from which the jury could conclude that defendant was the aggressor were, of course, that Caleb was shot in the back from some distance away. He was shot twice. Defendant and Caleb have a long and tumultuous history. The shooting was accomplished by defendant's own weapon, which Caleb had willingly surrendered possession of. And most importantly, well, not perhaps not most importantly, but also importantly, is that defendant's story did not align with the forensic evidence or common sense. Specifically, that although defendant purportedly suffered a vicious and frightening assault, she has suffered apparently no significant injuries and had no significant pain. That although defendant purportedly had the gun in her hand when Caleb assaulted her, he apparently didn't attempt to grab it or gain control of it. And, though, and although defendant purportedly shot Caleb while he was attacking her, he was nevertheless shot in the back. Viewed in the light most favorable to the state, this evidence is, suggests the defendant's description of events was false or embellished. Counsel, instead, permit me to yes. read from North Carolina General Statute Section 14-51.2b as a setup to my question to you. The lawful occupant of a home, and I'm going to excerpt accordingly just to get to the pertinent points. The lawful occupant of a home is presumed to have held a reasonable fear of imminent death or serious bodily harm to himself or herself or another when using defensive force that is intended or likely to cause death or serious bodily harm to another if the person upon whom defensive force is used had unlawfully and forcefully entered a home. Mm -hmm. Was that presumption rebutted? I think, give me the question one more time. Sure. Was the presumption, the statutory presumption rebutted that as you applied the law statutorily to these facts, the defendant forcefully entered the home, and I don't think there's any dispute about that, mm -hmm. that she therefore, the defendant, 
had a presumption upon being in reasonable fear of death or serious bodily injury to herself or either her daughter who was in an adjoining room, that she would be presumed to be able to use force that was intended to potentially cause death or serious bodily harm to the defendant because of the way he entered. Did the evidence rebut that presumption? The evidence established, so if we look, if we continue to look, that, the answer to that question, I think, is related to 14-51.4. Right. Which <clears throat> says that the, the defensive habitation is not available to a person who used defensive force and who initially provokes the use of force against himself or herself. And so we have, then we have the sort of statutory packing in of the aggressor doctrine. But which so, one of those would therefore need to operate first in the state's eyes? Because I understand that you're saying by way of the instruction that would be appropriate, the aggressor instruction that such indicia in the evidence, such as being shot in the back mm -hmm. as, the, uh, as, as the decedent was, the fact that he had thrown down the gun and therefore had surrendered the very weapon that was used against him would therefore give light to the instruction being appropriate. But if the evidence did not uh, rebut the statutory presumption, does your instruction element even come into play? I think I, I skipped part of my answer. Uh, I should have I given you. In 14-51.2, one of the aspects in which that presumption may be rebutted the presumption set forth in subsection B of this section shall not apply or shall be rebuttable and does not apply in any of the following circumstances. The person, against, the person against whom defensive force is used has discontinued all efforts to unlawfully and forcefully enter the home and has exited the home. So to me, I think in, in this circumstance, this is a situation where we, we, can, we can tie that evidential showing together. We have somebody who got shot in the back I think it's super important, and th this is one of the, the, the key factors. When I inherited this case and I was reading this, this briefing, it, it is very important in my mind that this woman, the defendant, absolutely may have had, there was enough evidence that she presented that somebody could absolutely conclude that this was self-defense, lawful defensive habitation. That's, that's not, a, I, I don't doubt that, and I don't, dispute that, and that's why the jury was instructed on that front. The question is whether or not there was any evidence from which, in particular on these facts, from which the jury could have reasonably concluded that her explanation of what occurred was in fact false, based on the forensic evidence that was available there. That same forensic evidence would operate to rebut the presumption under 14-51.2, or it would uh, render the defensive home unavailable under 14-51.4. Did the defendant present evidence at trial? She did testify. Yes, let, let me ask you this, a couple of factual questions. Um, her testimony at trial, which seemed to have differed from the statement she gave mm -hmm. after the event, and different than what she said even later on, uh, indicated that uh, when she got the gun back, she pulled the holster or pulled the gun out of the holster before she shot the defendant. What, uh, 
And again, I like the way that you've phrased it because, you know, defense of home was given, and the only question before us is, is it unlawful or was it wrong for the trial court to give the aggressor doctrine in the jury charge? The fact that she pulled, in her own testimony, she pulled the gun out of the holster, how is that relevant? I think it would certainly be evidence that, I mean, the jury could construe that as evidence that she was fixing to shoot. That it wasn't a continuous transaction if she had time to pull it out. If she had a moment. I mean, and that larger, you could even almost zoom out on that question a little bit. I mean, he surrendered the gun. And again, this isn't about whether Caleb was a nice guy or that he did nice things or that this was all, you know, I'm not disputing the testimony, substantially disputing the testimony of even the defendant, except for that little shooting portion. And April, her daughter, obviously testified about overhearing a lot of combative. I don't dispute that he wasn't being nice. The jury heard time and again, I'm sorry, were you? Go ahead. The jury heard time and again, and again, I'm looking at the defense of the home, unlawful entry. And yet they also heard he had a key. And they also heard that there was nothing broken with regard to his entry. How would the jury consider those, that aspect? They might reject the defense of habitation option out of hand because it wasn't an unlawful entry. Or they might reject it because the presumption was forfeited, or they conclude that they believe, based on the forensic evidence, that he was leaving, and so she forfeited any presumption. Or they might conclude that she actively simply attacked him as he was leaving, and therefore forfeited any, became an aggressor that forfeited any presumption. I think there are several ways that defense of habitation could fall in this case. Or they could believe it, again, not being, you know, it's all sort of presented there for the jury to decide because of the conflict. And the most significant conflict in this case to me is simply the conflict between her description of events, no matter how we read it, whether we try to hybridize what she told officers in the stand, or both, or we pick one or the other, and the fact that somebody was shot twice in the back from some kind of distance is something that this court has made an inference specifically as indicating that the person was retreating. And again, it's not whether the jury should have believed that Caleb was, or should have concluded or needed to conclude that she was an aggressor as a matter of law or something like that. But it's simply, is it enough from which the jury ought to be given the opportunity to draw the inference and decide whether they don't accept her version of events because it doesn't align with the forensic testimony. You know, this court in Cannon talked about being shot from the side and from behind as, quote, supporting the inference that defendant shot at the victim only after the victim had quit the argument trying to leave. And that's common sense. You know, bullets go in straight lines. I don't think that's terribly controversial. Williams, the Court of Appeals, shooting an unarmed victim twice, quote, clearly tends to show that the defendant was the aggressor. All of these facts suggest, or at least give rise to a reasonable inference that defendant's story of how it occurred ought to be, or that the jury could decide to reject her version of events. In determining whether the evidence was sufficient to submit the aggressor doctrine to the jury, 
I certainly understand that we take all the evidence in the light most favorable to the state. But that doesn't mean, does it, that it isn't our burden to, to, to look at all the evidence. Uh, and, and so it doesn't mean we ignore some parts of the evidence, but we look at all the evidence taken in the light most favorable to the state. Is that correct? correct? And then on the question of whether or not the fact that um, he was shot twice is evidence supporting an aggressive doctrine um, instruction, isn't, isn't the um, law of self-defense, if she believes, if she is justified in self-defense, believing that he, you know, I understand there was testimony from her daughter that he said, he, she heard him say, I'm going to kill you. Mm -hmm. 30 minutes before the incident, there was he texted her saying something about, you may find yourself in a ditch. ditch yeah. mm -hmm. um, if she believed that he was trying to kill her mm -hmm. or her, cause serious physical injury or kill her daughter, mm -hmm. then she's justified in using deadly force, right? right? So that doesn't mean force that merely disables. No. No. And, and in fact, don't in our cases when people say, oh, I didn't mean to kill him, I just wanted him, you know, I just wanted him to I go away. Him or whatever. That's it, actually a problem. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so why would being shot twice? I mean, I, I understand the evidence that he was shot in the back is taking the light most favorable to the state is tending to show he was trying to leave the room. Right. But why would the fact that he was shot twice um, uh, tend to show she was the aggressor? I think maybe, maybe I should phrase it, be more careful. I think being shot twice in the back okay. <laughs> is it definitely sort of, uh, I, I think, adds, you know, is what gives gravity that. Because I could imagine a situation, uh, I've seen enough surveillance videos of, of people really being shot, which is the unfortunate aspect of the job, but um, to know that n not every time does somebody just drop immediately. They often do. Um, but sometimes if she's, you know, as, uh, uh, my colleague points out Caleb was six foot one, I think 200 and some odd pounds, significantly larger than this woman. This is a small room. I could imagine a scenario where if all of this lined up, if we changed that one fact, if we had uh, Caleb being shot in the front twice from close range, then maybe this, this wouldn't be an issue at all. Right, but six inches is not very far. At least six inches. Right, but so, so it was. It, it could have been. It could have been seven inches. It could have been seven, or it could have been seven feet. Right. Right. So it's it just. It, it's sort of. It's that. That's. Good. But it's not point. It's not right. barrel to, to chest. Counsel, I still want to make sure I'm clear on the Please. presumption mm -hmm. in terms of how you answered that question. Again, the statutory presumption here still looms, mm -hmm. and. I'd like to know what it is that the state feels is the evidence that rebuts the presumption of 14-51.2b. The presumption of 14, let me see if I can try to answer it in too clear. The presumption doesn't apply at all. Defense of habitation is not available to an aggressor. So if there's evidence establishing that she's an aggressor or showing that she's an aggressor, they're, they're, then the, the presumption wouldn't be available out of the gate. Doesn't the presumption come before that? I think, well, not according to the statute, right? Uh, you know, under 14-51.4, under I always get these the points mixed up. Um, the, the, the defense of home is not available to a person who, and that goes on to relay the aggressor doctrine. Um, is there anything in 14-51.4 Parens 2 
that speaks to a presumption since you're using that statute to negate the presumption of 51.2b and I understand maybe we're having an academic exercise but from the standpoint of again trying to reconcile the two statutes as well as trying to understand when a presumption is operable prior to being rebutted if rebutted at all just trying to line all of that up appropriately as the court's going to need to do apparently yeah no 14-51.4 uh, um, I don't think there's anything in there as I'm you know skimming my eyes over it that says presumption but it does say it does open with that the defense of habitation is not available and that is where that that defense is where that presumption resides so uh, uh, you're sort of out uh, uh, if you're the, which I mean incidentally makes sense I mean if, if, if we had and that that really is kind of what this case comes down to is this idea of if you are attacked if you are assaulted certainly in your home if you are attacked if somebody busts in you have the right to defend yourself and, uh, and, you, and there's a presumption in defensive habitation that comes into play that when somebody kicks in your door, you don't have to say, well, are you really here to hurt me? I'm not sure. I, I got to make, you know, I have to see if I have this fear and if it's reasonable. You, you get to have that presumption. But when someone starts to leave, even if, they, even, if they, even if you would have been justified at shooting them when they first came in or when they first came in and attacked you, even if you would have had that, once they start to, 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 to go, you can't just sort of gun them down and then say, well, I had a presumption. But that's, that was not established by the evidence no. that he was trying to leave. That is something that is being inferred Inference. that perhaps he was trying to leave because he was shot in the back. Mm -hmm. But does the inference that he may have been trying to leave enough to rebut a presumption that is statutorily in place? I... Don't know. I, I think it would be. It creates an interesting nexus with, with in terms of well, what do you do when you're talking about a jury instruction this way and you have a statutory presumption? I mean, the 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 statutory aggressor doctrine seems to just take defensive home habitation just off the table. It's just not available. So then, but if you can't know whether that occurs unless say the defendant concedes it or something like that ahead of time. I'm not sure how you would then sort of leverage that in to give to give the I guess you'd have to give the jury the opportunity or you tell them it's a presumption or something. Okay, just said another yeah, way, I'm I, I, I'm struggling with the aspect of yeah. the inference that he was shot in the back and that he may have been leaving. Right. If that is strong enough, since it was no testimony as to that, but yet there's a statutory presumption in place that uh -huh. there has to be evidence inherent with the rebuttal of a presumption and that evidence apparently is not here. Well, yeah, I mean, you'd have, you, you have the, and I, I suppose I should also mention, the, the idea that on the one hand we have the statutory aggressor doctrine that says, you know, defense habitation is not available if you're an aggressor. Then, and so what does that mean and how do we work that in? And then, and then you've got the other uh, uh, angle on um, uh, 51 point itself which talks about the presumption being rebutted if the person was exiting so one, one or the other um, and I think they both kind of overlap um, so council let, let me make sure nope. I understand 
Had, had the defendant shot the decedent um, upon entry, if, if we look in the light most favorable to the defendant, I know that's not what we're supposed to, uh -huh. but had the uh, defendant shot the decedent upon entry, then uh, she would have the presumption. Certainly sounds that way. I think so, yeah. So, so what is the difference between the ability to shoot on entry versus the, uh, the shooting here? The imminence of the threat. So, so when somebody's leaving, or if there's an inference that somebody's departing, you are no longer being threatened. And I think that's interesting. There, there is a thread here that goes through a lot of the case law, um, which, you know, under both the common law, the old common law, we used to have four steps of self-defense. And then in the statutory, we have this, uh, this sort of two first steps, and there's other statutory provisions that come in later. But those two steps, those first two steps are the same, which is that you're in fear of uh, death or substantial bodily harm, uh, in fear of imminent <coughs> or substantial bodily harm, uh, and that fear is reasonable. Those are the first two steps in the common law, and they're also the first ones that are put in 14-51.3. Uh, I think there's a lot of the case law takes that idea that they resolve I I this, this aggressor issue comes down in, 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 or the similar facts can come down in two ways. You can have a situation where you're talking about imminence of a threat. If somebody's leaving, they're not, the threat isn't imminent anymore, right? As opposed to when they're busting in and attacking you. Well, now, now I have an imminent threat that I have to repel. But if they attack me, as wrong as it is, as unlawful and mean-spirited and illegal as the attack is, if they're leaving, my remedy is to call the police. So, so if, if they're leaving, is that, uh, does that rebut the presumption that the person would be in reasonable fear of death or imminent bodily harm? I mean, that, that would seem to me, to, to, as a practical matter, rebut the presumption, sure. If somebody's leaving, I'm not in fear of this person killing me anymore because they're leaving. That's what leaving is. Um, boy, I can see I'm running up here on my time. Let me make sure I, um, so the court, so I do think the evidence is sufficient to create an inference that defendant was the aggressor, particularly the, the shots in the back, obviously is the most important, but I think there's a sort of constellation of other, uh, uh, evidence around that in terms of their, um, you know, the sort of, uh, uh, cantankerousness or tumultuousness of the relationship and, and the fact that it was defendant's gun and, and, and so on. Um, the Court of Appeals opinion very clearly resolves all of these, or the sort of any, any split inferences or any, any, any um, um, uh, any dispute in these facts just in defendant's favor, right? They just, for example, they say that the, the court accepted that these shots were fired, quote, to try to get away from Caleb's attack. That's hard for me to, to reconcile when somebody's shot in the back. I don't, I don't quite understand how that, how that works. But again, the jury could have been entitled to believe it, but I think they were entitled to, an instruct, to the instruction that they got, and they obviously didn't believe it. Um, so the state does think the... Um, evidence supports an aggressor instruction. Um, at the end of the day, the case isn't about whether the defendant's story should have been believed or whether she uh, sufficed to, her evidence uh, sufficed to put the issue of self-defense for the jury. The state is not suggesting the jury was required to find that she was an aggressor. The state is arguing simply that there was evidence from which the jury could have concluded that she was the aggressor, which is to say someone who continues to pursue the fight after the opponent retreats. Um, this conflicts, defendant's story therefore conflicts with the forensic evidence, um, and this gives rise to an inference that defendant may have unnecessarily and willingly continued the fight after he walks away. State therefore asks that the decision of the Court of Appeals be reversed. 
stands on its briefing as to any issues of prejudice. And barring further questions, I'll reserve the last two minutes and 50 seconds for rebuttal. Thank you, Council. We'll hear from the FLE. May it please the court, my name is Marilyn Ozer, and I'm here to defend Wendy Hicks. I'd like this court to visualize the scene a little better, and it might help with Justice Morgan's question about inferences. We're not talking about a house on a golf course that's 3,500 feet. We're talking about a single wide trailer. The bedroom that Wendy was in, locked into because Caleb wouldn't let her out, was tiny. It was packed with a bed, a chest, a mirror. She couldn't get out. The fact that Caleb was not facing her when she shot him might just show that uh, that was her opportunity because Caleb was six foot one, over 200 pounds in this tiny single wide trailer bedroom. If she had used the gun when he was looking at her, he could have grabbed that gun in an instant, turned it around and killed her. And importantly, the fact that his back was to her does not sustain an inference that he was exiting. Perhaps he was going to exit the bedroom. Wendy's daughter, April, was on the other side of that door. And Wendy had just as much of a right to defend April as she had to defend herself. So there is no inference he was leaving. He might have been walking towards the bedroom door, but he wasn't leaving that trailer. There's no inference he was leaving the trailer. And I would like this court to review April Hicks' testimony because that shows that there was no break between when Caleb was pushing Wendy around the trailer, stomping on her feet and yelling, I'm going to kill you, and the shots. There was no break. He hadn't indicated that he had abandoned his assault. In fact, he had not abandoned the assault. She was in fear for her life. And in the brief and this morning, we hear that she didn't show enough injuries. Well, I don't believe there's anywhere in the statute for a homeowner to have to show a certain degree of injuries before the homeowner has a right to protect herself and her child. In fact, the sheriff noticed bruising. So the story was not made up of whole, whole cloth. She was bruised. He was assaulting her and she showed bruising. What April said was that he came in the same way as he had come in the day before. He burst into the trailer. He started, he banged the dog gate, baby gate down. 
rushed into Wendy's bedroom with such force that the door hit the chest that's right behind it. And then there, the screaming started. She heard her mother being assaulted and then heard gunshots. She thought her mother was shot. And back to Chief Justice Newby's remark, I understand your concern with the fact that he may have had a key. That's not what the statute says. Your defensive home, you have a right to defend your home against anyone other than a lawful occupant, what the statute defines as an owner or a lessee. Caleb was none of these. He lived at a house with his wife. The transcript seems to indicate that he that there was a spare key on the front, in front of the front door, and that's probably how he got in. But if your neighbor knows you've got a spare key, does that give your neighbor a right to burst in whenever he wants? And we know- well, I, What I'm struggling with is I, everything you just said, I think makes a really compelling jury argument on the self-defense issue, but uh, you know, I'm just imagining we see so many cases where it's the criminal defendant saying, I want this instruction. Well, sometimes it's self-defense. It's saying, and, you, know, I've, you have to look at the evidence in the light most favorable to me and have I shown. And here it just seems sort of the reverse of that. It's the state saying, uh, we, we didn't have a very high bar. We just had to have enough that looking at everything, the light favorable to us, we can infer that uh, your client was the aggressor and get the instruction. And then it's for the jury try to piece together what really happened you know inside that bedroom in that trailer and isn't the being shot in the back the fact that she changed her story and maybe isn't credible isn't that alone enough to raise the question and get the instruction and let the jury decide what really happened I I understand your concern with being shot in the back but as I tried to explain before that that was her opportunity to defend herself and her daughter. The case, uh, Cannon or Williams, where the person is shot in the back, is a, a different situation. The defendant in that case wasn't the one that was being assaulted. He was defending a woman in the house. And the uh, victim was setting up to leave. Williams went and got a gun and went after him and shot him. That is just worlds apart from the, the scene in this house where he had never left the bedroom. It all took place in under two minutes. He had had the gun at one point in that two minutes. Nothing was stopping him from grabbing that gun back again because of his size. And the fact that the room was so small, Wendy had nowhere to get away from him in that room. She was trying to get out and he was blocking her. He was stomping on her feet to try to get her to fall. So the fact that he shot in the back is not evidence that she was an aggressor. It's just evidence that he happened to be turning around at that point. We don't know he was trying to leave. What if anything should we make of what defense counsel said at trial during the course of the jury charge conference uh, when counsel said, quote, I don't think there's any evidence that she was the aggressor, but I will concede that the jury could find that the second shot was excessive, unquote. 
I think uh, Mr. Wells was probably getting that from case law, which has held in murder that a second shot can show intent. Um, I don't think he was correct in this instance because it's contrary to the statute that you were reading, that you have a right to defend yourself, to use deadly force. And uh, as my learned counsel has agreed, one shot does not indicate that the person is, is going to even fall down. And this big man could have grabbed the gun. So this court should not in any way, in your estimation, construe what defense counsel said at trial that there would be evidence that could be construed to lead to the aggressor instruction here uh, in that the second shot could be deemed to be excessive by the jury? I, I'm sorry to say this as Mr. Wells is no longer with us, but I think he was incorrect. Second shot doesn't mean you're the aggressor. It means you've been taught that you shoot until the danger has passed. That's what police officers, officers are taught. That's what you're taught in uh, classes about safe handling of guns and when you can use defense. What's your position on what I was engaging the state's counsel in concerning the a homogenization of the two statutes in terms of looking at a rebuttable presumption on one hand that's statutorily set versus the inference that the state would like to see this court give to the two shots in the back as to being an inference being able to be drawn that he was leaving and juxtaposing that with the statutory presumption being rebutted. I think the facts of this case color uh, the interpretation more than they should because the court is looking at a man and a woman who have a relationship instead of looking at a man bursting into a house that he has no right to be in uh, he knows he has no right to be in it because at 5 a.m. he texts, if I have to, I'm going to kick the door down. So there's, there's no rebuttable, uh, presum the presumption has not been rebutted that she had a right to defend her house. And I think it gets colored because uh, of things that were said about their long relationship, the tumultuous relationship. And maybe we need to step back and look at it as if this is a stranger who broke in. Would we even be discussing the fact that the burglar was shot twice in his back? I don't think so. Would the burglar have given 30 minutes notice before he arrived or she arrived? What was the burglar wouldn't have given notice, but what was Wendy supposed to do? She well, did she try to call law enforcement? I mean, just looking at it from the jury's perspective, and again, the only question was, was the jury properly charged? Right. Um, but 
I think there's a lot of different nuances that the jury could consider. Well, just Chief Justice Newby, if the jury was going to consider the 30-minute warning, uh, it should also consider the fact that she said twice or texted twice, don't come here, stay away, please don't come here. She had a right to think that when she told him not to come, he wouldn't come. He then broke into the house. He found the key, came in without permission. He had no legal right to use that key to come into the house. Burst through the dog gate, takes the door off the hinges as he's coming in. He's being very violent. And April, who's listening to it and narrating it, uh, says how violent he's being. I, I don't know exactly what Wendy could have done within that 30 minutes. Calling the police what do we would make take this? a lot of foresight. She would have had to know that he was going to come in, grab a gun from her, and point it at her face. What do we make of the state's position, or what should we make of the state's position that the defense of home, to the extent that serious bodily harm or even death can be uh, occasioned upon the intruder, that she did not have, the defendant did not have the right to engage in that level of force because the other statute uh, the aggressor doctrine uh, should have been applied here? The aggressor doctrine only gets applied if there's some evidence that she was the aggressor. And what I've maintained at the Court of Appeals and here is there's no evidence. And I don't understand how 1451.4 uh, can take precedence over 51.2, which very clearly states you're even immune from prosecution if what has happened is someone has illegally entered in your, your house violently. And we don't need to have Wendy's word for it was violent. April is on the phone, trying to get on the phone with her boyfriend because the day before, Caleb had done the same thing. Her boyfriend was so worried about his violent, Caleb's violent nature that he had left his gun with April. And when she finally did get up with her boyfriend, he said, take the gun, walk very slowly into your mother's bedroom because Caleb might still be there and Caleb might be armed. So there's just no presumption, uh, no evidence that he were the, was the aggressor and I don't quite understand how those two statutes would uh, work together if, again, we're not talking about a man and woman who, who know each other, but a stranger. I, is the state's position that if a stranger broke into the house, um, you can become the aggressor somehow? I, I, don't, I can't imagine that situation. Does that go to reasonableness of the, the fear, though, that it's a stranger versus uh, someone that, that you have some, some familiarity with? It 
would be if if in this case caleb hadn't demonstrated over the last several days what his character was like when he was high on meth and he could have been a perfectly gentle nice person before the drug addiction got to him again but there were three different days that he went to wendy's house and got involved in an altercation on saturday was when daniel april's boyfriend saw him and daniel was so upset by caleb's violent nature that's when he gave april the gun or had her keep the gun with her when he went to work in the morning and the day before on monday caleb had come in again very violent knocking things over as he went in and making threats about what he was going to do to her that day she was able to calm him down something different was this day maybe it was the level of meth in his bloodstream we know that he had recently taken meth because of the ratio of methamphetamine to amphetamine in his system according to the pathologist he was very high i think it's 1.5 milligrams pathologist testified that if he hadn't been shot a possible cause of death could have been meth overdose let, let me ask so so you would agree with me with the the question i asked of your friend that upon entry the decedent could have been shot by the defendant yes sir i agree with that and and at, at some point if if the decedent is in the home long enough the reasonableness of the threat dissipates I am sure there's a situation where that would be accurate. But and, what, and, and what we I'm have sorry. in this case is less than two minutes from entry to being shot. No, I understand. And, and I am speaking specifically of uh, this situation where there is some relationship, not the burglar, because that, that may well be different. But if there is, if there is um, an immediacy um, uh, component to the reasonableness of the threat, where do we draw that line? What factors do we look at uh, to draw that line? In this case, I believe if Caleb had exited the bedroom, exited the trailer, and was then shot, she would have been the aggressor. But he hadn't even exited her bedroom. And within the two minutes, he had, he had had control of the gun at one point pointed it at her head, was being violent to her. And we're talking a lot about guns, and she was armed, he wasn't. Well, in real life, if you're a woman and a six-foot-one, over-200-pound man, high on meth, is throwing you around the room, he's armed. He can kill you. He doesn't need a gun. And more importantly, if she had a gun, he could have gotten it away from her in an instant. So this whole debate about armed or, other, or unarmed doesn't apply in the situation. He could have been armed at any second he wanted to be armed. You said something earlier about the daughter being on the other side of the room uh, or the other side of the door in the adjacent room. Are you asking us to as we continue to use these artful terms, inference and presumption, are you asking us to infer that the decedent 
was in position as he was turning while shot in the back to therefore be going into the room where the daughter was? Or are you asking us to extend the presumption under the statute to defense of another in terms of there still being this opportunity under the statute for the defendant to be in position to inflict serious bodily harm or death against the intruder? Uh, Justice Morgan, I would say it was the second, that we looked to the statute and the presumption that the homeowner has the right to defend herself and her child. And in this case, it was her child and her child's friend. So the presumption under the statute is that she has the right to protect her child and the other occupants of the house. The trial court gave the defense of habitation, defense of home, jury instruction, correct? Yes, sir. And it, was there a problem with that instruction? There wasn't a problem with that instruction, but he gave the aggressor doctrine, I think it was eight times. And part of the aggressor doctrine, which was especially prejudicial, was that words alone are enough to be the aggressor. And we all know that that means that if two young men are on the street trash talking each other, that's enough for the trash talker to be the aggressor. But the jury didn't know that. And they had sat through over two days of listening to things that uh, Wendy had said to Caleb and Caleb had said back in texts. And importantly, that morning or seven hours before that, Wendy had threatened to uh, send some very explicitly disgusting photos of sex organs to Caleb's wife. There's no question that the jury could have taken the part of the aggressor doctrine that words alone are enough to turn you into the aggressor to mean that they could find she was the aggressor because of what she had done seven hours earlier. Well, she was instructed, the jury was instructed by the trial court that, um, that the, uh, with regard to second degree murder, uh, only if Ms. Hicks, I'm quoting, was the aggressor with the intent to kill or inflict serious bodily injury upon the deceased. Uh, is that a, a wrong statement of the law? Excuse me, could you repeat the question? Yes. So uh, it, it, the trial court instructed that the defendant would not be, with regard to second degree murder, would not be uh, entitled to uh, a defense of self-defense or defense of home if Ms. Hicks was the aggressor with the intent to kill or inflict serious bodily harm. So is that, is that a correct statement of the law? I, I'm not ob objecting to the statement of the law. I'm objecting to whether or not that doctrine, the aggressor doctrine, was constitutionally applicable to, in this case. Could he instruct correctly on the aggressor doctrine if there was no evidence from which the jury 
could arrive at a decision that she was the aggressor. I'm not, it did, does that answer your question, Chief Justice? Well, and the, the trial court also gave the instruction uh, with regard to no duty to retreat, quote, absent evidence to the contrary, the lawful occupant of a home is presumed to have held a reasonable fear of imminent death or serious bodily harm to herself or another when using defensive force that is intended or likely to cause death or serious bodily harm to another if both of the following apply. And then it talks about uh, the person against whom the defensive force was used had unlawfully and forcibly entered the home and the person using defensive force knew or had reason to believe that an unlawful and forcible entry or unlawful and forcible act was occurring or had occurred. You don't disagree with that statement of the law, do you? I don't disagree with the jury instructions other than the fact that he gave the aggressor doctrine eight separate times. Well, and by you're saying that, you're assu I'm assuming, because there, there's one time that he gave the aggressor doctrine. Now, he probably mentioned the aggressor doctrine more frequently in the, in, than that. But with regard to an actual statement of what the aggressor doctrine meant, doctrine meant, uh, he did that once, correct? Uh, he gave the aggressor doctrine in full as a preamble to the instruction on second degree and involuntary. He then repeated it in second degree. He repeated it in involuntary. Uh, it occurs on pages 2548, 2549, 2550, 51, 53, 54, 55, and 56. Well, if you look at 2548, certainly you get his explanation of that, of the aggressor doctrine. But if you look at some of the other pages that you've mentioned, it simply is a mentioning that the, uh, the aggressor doctrine could be applicable to whatever is being described there, correct? Our position is that's where the harm is because all the way through the jury instructions, he keeps referring back to the aggressor doctrine. And we need to assume that the jury heard the first explanation and is using that explanation to inform the subsequent mentions of the aggressor doctrine. It's not as if they have forgotten the, the preamble aggressor doctrine uh, they're just being reminded of it seven more times. Uh, just to recap, Wendy Hicks was lying in bed 628 in the morning when a man enraged with meth came in pointed a gun at her, her gun, but pointed the gun at her, started throwing her around the room or knocking her into furniture. She was able to get the gun back. She used it in self-defense. No evidence of the aggressor doctrine. And the only way a juror, jury could have found that this was not a shooting in defense of the daughter is if they believed 
She was not entitled to it because she was the aggressor. We ask this court to affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Rebuttal. Um, just very quickly, I want to try to run through some of these. Um, Counsel, sorry, I know you have limited time. I'll try to make it quick. Is it the state's position that because the defendant was convicted of second-degree murder, that even if the aggressor instruction uh, should not have been given, that it was not prejudicial? I think that argument's very hard. I think uh, if the court reads Is that argued in the state's brief? It is. I think, I think if this court reads uh, Holloman, um, which I submitted through a memorandum of additional authority, um, you'll find that the aggressor doctrine at both, in Holloman incorporated into the statute, but at common law it was an existing principle on the idea that there's a distinction in the aggressor doctrine with whether or not you're applying the aggressor is A, an initial aggressor, and B, whether or not they um, apply, provoke deadly force. Because it's what this court called in Holloman that creates this, this possibility of a self-defense merry-go-round where you would, you, as counsel, defense counsel pointed out, there is times when uh, uh, words on the street can be, can make you an aggressor. You bully or talk to somebody and, and that could be an aggressor issue that could come up and particularly under the common law could end up creating, if you end up in a fight and somebody dies, you could move what would otherwise be murder down to voluntary manslaughter because of some kind of provocation. But the provocation uh, by the aggressor was non-lethal. Non you were not provoking deadly force. The statute grabs that idea by saying if you, if you, you know, it, it's, uh, that self-defense is unavailable to an aggressor unless the person provoked responds with this severe um, uh, form of uh, aggression that kind of resets the balance. Um, Counsel, if, I, I apologize. Mr. Chief Justice, it appears that the clock may be frozen. Yes. I am. No, thank you. I, am I appreciate at, uh, that. Stuck in time here. There we go. <laughs> the, uh, so the... Um, Anyway, point being that if we have a, and, and uh, as the Chief Justice was pointing out, reading some of the definitions of aggressor um, uh, in the jury instructions talks about uh, when the aggressor is applying um, a murderous intent and so on. That can create a problem where self-defense goes out, goes completely by the boards under uh, the common law or the statute, at which point a finding of second degree murder may, uh, that kind of defeats the, 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 the non-prejudice argument presumes that an, an aggressor the, the only consequence under the common law, it presumes only the common law applies, and then it presumes that the only potential consequence to being an aggressor is a voluntary manslaughter conviction, which is not the case if the aggression is presented with, uh, with the intention of murderous intent. Um, quick run. Um, uh, uh, a lot, I, I don't necessarily agree that the jury could have found a lot of the things that the defense counsel here mentioned. They just didn't. Um, the uh, certain things like defendant could have grabbed the gun in an instant. If he had it, he could have gotten away. He did have it, but he gave it away, uh, which I think, again, creates, uh, brings in this idea that these people had a relationship, and, and I think that matters. That has to be factored in. This isn't a burglar. Um, and I don't agree that somebody could just grab a gun from somebody. That's, uh, I, I think that's dubious. Um, somebody asked about, um, well, both the idea of you know, shooting someone in the back is your opportunity. I, that's murder. Um, I, I, I don't, unless you have a reason or have some kind of evidence to believe that somebody's going elsewhere in the house to pursue or do some kind of damage, and there's just no, there's no evidence of that in the record. It's just speculative. Um, we do have, somebody asked if there was, um, 
if, this, if there was a burglar who was shot twice in the back, would we even be talking about this? Uh, we might. Um, you know, we, we have, uh, there's been plenty of cases in the media where somebody is fleeing out of a house and a homeowner sees them and guns them down or something like that, and, and that person is charged with murder. Sometimes they're not convicted, sometimes they are, but it does matter that somebody, even if they're the aggressor, even if they're, they're the one that invaded the house or they kicked in the door or they were the initial aggressor or whatever, if, if they flee the scene and get shot in the thank back. Thank you, counsel. Matter. I believe your time's expired. Thank you, Your Honor.